You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. When his father, Fred, passed away in 1962, Fritz was still out in California. Growing up, he was not expected, nor expecting, to take over the appliance company. He explained that though his family held a fair amount, Maytag Corporation was publicly owned. Quote, I'm extremely grateful nobody ever pressured me into feeling as though I had a heritage that I had to accept. When I was a boy, I never even thought of that. The dairy farm's a little different, I guess. Our family had this magical little business in that it interested me. Bacteria, yeast, and mold, and all kinds of good stuff in there. So even from his boyhood, the blue cheese factory exposed Fritz to the chemistry of fermentation. Sitting with him, a man just entering his 70s, I could see him traveling back in time, revisiting his youth. Suddenly, in front of me, sat momentarily young Fritz, recounting experiments in his basement lab with the Bausch & Lomb compound oil immersion microscope that his dad's friend had given him. As he grew up, through high school and Stanford, the microscope accompanied him wherever he went. Even today, he said, as if warping through time, back to the present, I just get a thrilling feeling looking through a catalog of chemical apparatus. <laughs> Reminding myself he had attended university before the movie Animal House, I couldn't exactly ask about toga parties, but I still believed that college kids in the 50s partied, even ones who toted around microscopes. Fritz unexpectedly stated, I wasn't a great beer lover. Then he recounted a parable as jolting as if you heard your grandfather tell you that one should listen to popular music for the messages in the lyrics or that sex is solely for procreation, and you wonder if it's merely his wholesome naivete or if the good old days could have really been that simple. Quote, I drank beer like almost every young person does, because I didn't want to get drunk in social situations. You know, college students don't sit around drinking whiskey because you can't talk philosophy and drink a lot of whiskey. You can talk all night and drink beer if you don't drink the whole lot. I was at a loss. Then he proffered a delightful understatement or admonishment, depending on the audience. Beer is an ideal social interchange beverage. Brian Yeager earned his master's degree in professional writing from the University of Southern California by writing a thesis on beer. He holds a double bachelor's degree in religious studies and Russian from the University of California at Santa Barbara, which his publisher tells us is a college renowned for its beer consumption. His first book is Red, White, and Brew, an American Beer Odyssey. Thank you for joining me, Brian. Thank you very much. Brian, tell us about the first time ever you drank beer. First time ever was uh, actually by accident. <laughs> I was sitting in my family's living room and just watching TV. And we had a little mini bar fridge in the living room. And I went into it and, you know, that's where we kept all the soda. So I pulled out a shiny can. It happened to be a silver can. And I thought, if all these other things are soda, this must be too. But uh, keep in mind, this was around 1984. And the Coors Company had a brand new product on the market. It was called Coors Light. And uh, my dad bought a six-pack, put it in the fridge. Unbeknownst to me, that's what I opened. And uh, I can tell you, even at the tender age of 10, it was not my favorite beer. But that was my first. Now, um, when you uh, started drinking beer uh, in 
was this in college? Was it, or was it before well, right. college? So, so uh, it was uh, quite a, a, a fair amount of time between that uh, first experience and then when I started drinking it on purpose. But uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, obviously drinking age in this country is 21, but believe it or not, a few college kids find ways to uh, procure beer. And uh, so I, at first, you know, that was my the beginning of my beer drinking career. And like a lot of college kids, it was all about quantity, not quality. When did that equation change? That equation changed for me when I was fortunate enough to study abroad in Russia. As you know, I was a Russian major and I was living and studying abroad. And it wasn't that Russian beers were all that good, but because it is, you know, part of Europe, they had access to a lot of other interesting European beers. So when I had German beers and Czech beers and a lot of strange, strong ales from around Scandinavia, I had really developed an affinity for those bold, flavorful beers. So when I came back, I was, you know, that was it. There was no more going back to the the weaker swill. I wonder how many times you've been asked why you embarked on this odyssey. A lot, is it? Or... I, I, a lot, but uh, I certainly I, I expect that question, and I have a pretty straightforward answer. I love beer, and I love road tripping, and I just thought, oh, that's a brilliant idea. Why don't I, why don't I drive around the country visiting craft breweries and, and getting to know the people who are responsible for them? Well, it seems like an obvious thing to do to me. <laughs> I, I, it's not a question that I need to answer for me. It's not to, what, what a natural idea. Now, tell us about designing the tour. You were, you were raised, born and raised in Southern California. Is that correct? That is correct. Uh, so being from Los Angeles, you would think that because it is the second biggest city in the country, it must have a pretty good beer culture. Wrong. There, there's really nothing to speak of in L.A. There's a few new ones popping up around L.A., nothing really in the city just yet. And even uh, one story that I kind of squeeze into the book, in the early 90s, uh, Anheuser-Busch and the very popular chef Wolfgang Puck collaborated to start a brew pub, and even that tanked. And uh, really, <laughs> exactly. You would think can't miss, you know, perfect on paper, but LA was just never a really good beer town. So part of me wanted to go out and explore where the good beer towns are. And obviously, in this day and age, uh, you really can find it everywhere. But that I wanted to, to find it where it comes from, so to speak. Now, tell us about the, the first place you visited. This is a GG, DG Youngling, Youngling? Yingling. Yingling, okay. And <laughs> they're in, uh, not surprisingly, Pottsville, Pennsylvania. Exactly. That's a small Appalachian town right in coal mining country. And the reason I started the book there is it is America's oldest brewery. A lot of people on the East Coast are familiar with it. They're very familiar with it because it has such a large market share along the Atlantic seaboard. But guess what? You cannot find it anywhere else in the rest of the country. Could you tell me why that is? That's really surprising to me. I mean, what? The, how hard is it to put that stuff on a train and send it over <laughs> here? It sounds good to me. Well, uh, you know, you're right. And unfortunately, that was sort of what wrecked the beer industry initially when some of the larger breweries said, hey, now that we have these refrigerated cars and trucks, uh, you know, we have railroad cars, why don't we start taking over other people's markets? So they did start shipping their beer around and sort of watering down the uh, the playing field, as it were. Yingling decided, uh, you know, a long time ago, they are essentially a family-owned company. Uh, the owner today, his name is Dick Yingling Jr. 
It was his great-great-grandfather who founded it back in 1829. And even though they're in 11 states today, uh, they really have no intention of, of taking over the whole country or shipping it around. They want to be strong in their local market rather than sort of weak in every market. Now, this has been in business for a long time, and this brings up a a question uh, for me. I mean, how how did these guys survive Prohibition? Well, they did what a lot of other breweries did during those, what I call the, you know, dark 14 years. But uh, they made non-alcoholic beer. They made soda pop, and they opened up a dairy. And, in fact, you could have gotten Yingling ice cream well after Prohibition, but uh, unfortunately that— part of the family business didn't survive, but thank God the brewery did. Well, tell us a little bit about um, their, they survived Prohibition. They not only survived Prohibition, they were ready for the end, weren't they? <laughs> <laughs> they exactly. Uh, you know, it was at first, in when, when Prohibition began with the 18th Amendment, and all these breweries thought, well, that's strange. How could you vote to go dry? But, uh, of course, there were pockets of of dryness, pockets of prohibition around the country, even before 1919. But essentially, they thought, well, this is going to go away. So they stayed in business and wanted to keep their employees going by doing something, you know, making ice, making soda pop, making soda water. And as the years dragged on, they probably were beginning to think it may never come back. But fortunately, a few breweries did stick around making things other than beer, at least According to the, <laughs> according to Uncle Sam, they you know that's what they were doing, and uh, and so when the news started spreading that the Twenty First Amendment was going to repeal prohibition, a lot of these breweries, you know, this is really during the thick of the Great Depression, they thought this is great, we're going to be able to put people back to work, so they did start brewing the beer, and the story with Yingling is that the day Roosevelt. Uh, sign, or ra- you know, rather the day that it became law, a truckload of Yingling showed up at the White House for him to enjoy. Uh, tell us a little bit about the kinds of beer that Yingling makes now, and and how do they relate from what they used to make? They really don't make that many different styles of beer. Their bestseller is their lager, which ironically wasn't one of the original beers that they brewed, even though they were a German family, uh, because in 1829. Lager hadn't even really been invented. Everyone thinks that all these German brewmasters who came over from the old country to the new world brought lager with them, but it really wasn't until the mid-19th century. So today, lager is their best-selling beer, but uh, you could get Yingling's Premium. You could get a Black and Tan. They do a Porter and a Lord Chesterfield Ale, which is one of my favorites from them. Your, Your next stop was in Portland, Maine, and there you learned the story um, of Alan Eames. So tell us about Alan Eames and D.J. Geary Brewing. Uh, it's, uh, D- D.L. Geary Brewing Company is uh, interesting because they're the oldest microbrewery in New England, and they incorporated in 1983. They didn't really start brewing and packaging until 86, and really there, there were a couple people who were instrumental in in suggesting to David and his wife Karen Geary to start the microbrewery, and one of them was a local publican, uh, who this guy who owned a bar called Three Dollar Dewey's. His name was Alan Eames, and he really became this very important beer historian. 
and he was nicknamed the Indiana Jones of beer because he went around exploring the roots and uh, he was sort of an archaeological uh, proponent of beer and beer history. Uh, they, though they have a, a going commerce, getting the money to start up a brewery back in 83 wasn't easy, was it? No, it certainly wasn't easy. Uh, they had been turned down by <laughs> more friends, family, and associates than you could imagine, probably turned down by a lot of banks as well, uh, especially because you have to keep in mind, during that era, the whole concept of a microbrewery was almost unheard of. Uh, today, people you know, see these great, delicious craft beers wherever they go, and one of the real things that that kickstarted the the success of it was Samuel Adams and his uh, radio and television spots but this was even before Sam Adams sort of kicked down the door to to good craft beer even though today of course uh, or rather I should say back in that day David Geary and Jim Cook who is the founder of Sam Adams are friends he he just didn't have that uh, foundation that we have that we have today for people who already know and seek out these interesting beers. Now, as you're driving across the country, you, you just presumably just graduated from college, from grad school, uh, yes. from grad school, yes. So, I mean, I mean, um, yeah, no visible means of support. <laughs> not to, not to put too fine a point upon it. Uh, this is not. How did you afford such a trip? Tell us a little bit about the logistics of, of a, a cross cross country beer odyssey. Because hey, we all want to go on one. <laughs> it, it, you know, it was a two pronged system that I used. One is I really was working a full time job. Mm, it was okay. uh, I was working at a small university in L.A. and the. The main benefit of that is that it came with vacation time. So I used all my vacation time. In that fact, I used some unpaid vacation time. So that's how I really had the, the bank account to start this. Uh, and I was going to, I was still in grad school at the time. And that's when I really wanted to, you know, just maybe if I had thought better about it, I wouldn't have done it. But I, I had the idea and uh, I just said, I'm going to go out and do it. And so that's. One way. The other thing is while I was actually on the trip, you know, people say, oh, you must have had a, a publishing house that gave you a, a huge advance or that you expense accounted all these uh, things. None of that. I, I am fortunate enough that I have friends who live around the country. So wherever possible, I had a couch to crash on or maybe a friend of a friend. If that wasn't available, maybe there was a cheap hostel. And if that wasn't available, I would um, just basically put the the seat of my car back and camp out wherever I happened to be, whether it was a, a rest stop or a next to a, a railroad, you know, a train track, whatever it might have been. If I got tired, that's where I slept. <laughs> Your next stop was in Kalamazoo. And one of the things you remind us of in this episode that was that it wasn't always legal to beer brew beer at home. That was the, the greatest accomplishment of the Carter administration. A absolutely. There, you know, there are presidents who... Usually down the road, people or, or history view them unfavorably. Sometimes current presidents are viewed unfavorably. But the fact is, if you really want to take an administration for, you know, for everything that it accomplished, you could always find one golden nugget. Uh, with the Nixon administration, it was the Clean Air and Water Acts. And with the Carter administration, it was the Cranston Act. 
legalizing home brewing in 1979. Well, tell us about uh, Bell's Brewery in Comstock. It's in two places, Comstock. And um, you also remind us here about uh, Pabst Blue Ribbon, which actually never won a Blue Ribbon, did it? <laughs> no. Uh, <laughs> and the way I work that in is, uh, af- well, two, two ways. Uh, Pabst sort of has this this panache, this uh, this great aura within the brewing world that both brewers and uh, and beer fans who maybe don't want to spend the money on a, a more expensive six pack of, of craft beer enjoy. And so I, I thought for this trip I have to go I had to go through Milwaukee anyway, which is where I drove after uh, Kalamazoo. but one of the things that I discovered there, obviously, the the brewery is not in Milwaukee, or I should say, an operable, an operating brewery isn't there. The old, uh, huge, monolithic brewery that used to make Paps is still hovering over the city of Milwaukee. It's it was shut down. I want to say, ninety four. I'd have to look it up, but uh, it ha- so it hasn't been operating in a while. Ninety four, ninety five, but. It, it really holds a place in the pantheon of, of great American beers. And, of course, one of the things that I set out to find are is who are the people who are making our beer today and how really do they differ from the beer barons of old. So you, I had wanted to take a look at who was Captain Frederick Pabst so that way I could really get a sense of what makes people like Larry Bell at Bell's Brewing in Kalamazoo so different. Well, what is it that makes him different? One of the things that I that I say is that the beer barons of old all pretty much had a similar story. They they set out to you know find uh, fame and fortune in the new world, and they brought their knowledge of how to brew their traditional Germanic beer with them, and then through you know through good acumen or good luck, they were successful and they all started brewing a million barrels of beer or more. But they were doing it making nearly identical, you know, macro-industrial lagers. And uh, for the most part, they're all gone as a result of prohibition and the consolidation within the brewing industry through that through the 1950s and 60s and 70s when they were all merging and acquiring one another. So Pabst does still exist today. And in fact, if you are able to find some of those old nostalgia brands like Schlitz or Rainier, they're actually owned by Pabst, uh, but but they're not doing anything altogether interesting. It's really more, like I said, for the sake of nostalgia or having an economy or a value brand out on the market, whereas a brewery like Bell's, they are unique in that they bottle about 20, maybe even more different beers. Very few breweries make that many different styles, and they're all really good. And they're all so incredibly different from each other, from uber, hoppy, bitter IPAs to exceptionally dark, roasty, malty stouts and porters. Uh, They just really run the entire beer gamut. And a few interesting things in between. They do a a cherry stout. uh, They do a cream stout. They, they, They just play around with different things, and that's one of the things that I love seeing, and I think a lot of beer fans love seeing in the breweries that they support. Now, uh, you went uh, next to uh, Chippewa Falls, Wisconsin, 
where you met Thomas Jake Leinenkugel. Good pronunciation. Perfect pronunciation. <laughs> uh, tell us about Leinenkugel beer, and uh, it's another old one, isn't it? It is. That's another, you know, one of those breweries that was around long before Prohibition, and it, it's still around today. And to, uh, the the current president, his nickname is Jake, he is also sort of like Dick Ewing. He is the current president, his grandson of the founder, Jacob Leinenkugel, who set up shop in Chippewa Falls in 1867. But one of the things that is different is unlike Yingling, which is completely uh, family owned and operated, Leinenkugel back in 1988 actually sold the company to Miller. So they are sort of in the Miller portfolio, or as I should say, they're in the uh, Miller Coors portfolio because unlike uh, InBev, which very famously bought out, or as they're calling it now, merged with Anheuser-Busch. It was a little quieter, but Miller and Coors merged earlier. And so this is just an example of what happened to some of those companies that are still around. Line & Cool is making, you know, pretty interesting beers, but they're doing it under the the umbrella of their parent company, which is Miller. But there are still Line & Cools who live and run who live in and run the company from Chippewa Falls. So so being beamed up into the Miller fold hasn't turned them deeply evil? No, you know, there are so many different ways to to view this and that's really why I wanted to go to this uh wide variety of breweries. I didn't want to show just one kind and people have said, mm-hmm. "Oh, so you only went to microbreweries." And I thought, "Well, I no, I it's not just these, you know, little mom and pop operations. Of course, they're in there too." I wanted to find breweries that were big, like Line Kugels and Yingling and New Belgium, and I wanted to find small ones, and I wanted to find ones that were, you know, dotting the landscape all around the country. So this is just one example of of one of the companies that is responsible for putting beer either in our fridge or on tap, things like that, you know, and 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 of course at ballparks and quickly know. down <laughs> our throats. Exactly. <laughs> um, Speaking of dotting the landscape, uh, you talk about Free State Brewing in Kansas, um, and Kansas was famous for having prohibition before prohibition. Oh yeah, first state <laughs> to enact prohibition. Yeah, they, you know, they have uh, their own set of of laws slash morals. I mean, they, they're obviously uh, inextricably linked uh, for a lot of people who live there, both for good and bad. Now, uh, this is not a, a, a brewery, so to speak. It's a brew pub. And tell us a little bit about the history of brew pubs. And, and um, you also mentioned something here that I didn't know about, New Albion Brewery. They're oh, brewery. yeah. So tell me about this whole brew pub in New Albion. All right. Well, sure. Uh, so New Albion uh, started in here in, in Northern California uh, by a man named Jack McAuliffe. I want to say the year was 1976. And... Unfortunately, it only lasted three years, but it was around long enough to create this spark. Uh, one of the things that I like to do is sort of relate it to the band The Velvet Underground and how uh, Lou Reed said, you know, we didn't sell, we only sold maybe 50,000 albums, but everyone who bought it went out and got a guitar and started a band. That's sort of what New, New Albion was to the brewing world. It was the first craft brewery in America, and from it, you know, a, a thousand uh, springs. So one of them 
is this guy, uh, Chuck Magrill, who lives in Lawrence, Kansas. And he was always involved in, uh, in, in, in eco-minded, sociologically-minded businesses. He, he managed a food co-op, and he was also uh, into beer. So it just so happened that he had his, his ear to the track, so to speak, and was keeping tabs on what was going on way, way, way out west in California with breweries like New Albion, New, breweries like Triple Rock in, in Brewery, and, of course, Anchor Seam in, in San Francisco. And so he thought, you know what? That's got to be the wave of the future. So that is what he started doing in in Lawrence, you know, when uh, when it was very when it when it was not a popular thing to be doing there. Now, um, could you talk about uh, the the legalities of, of brew pubs? There's a, I mean, there was a big to do about this in the UK recently, and um, could you talk about the the legalities of them here? You know, brewing and, and serving in the same place is that? It, yeah, it it, it actually is different from state to state, mm-hmm. and a lot of the people who I met with were the people who had petitioned their state legislatures to change the laws post-prohibition to allow them to either operate, to open and operate a brewery that packaged or a brew pub that sold beer on premise. And that really is the definition of a brew pub if you sell most of your beer on premise or maybe to go in growlers. Uh, these you know half gallon jars. Yeah, tell us about the growlers. I thought I love that term. <laughs> That's a really interesting term. You brought that up into uh, somewhere down here. So. Oh yeah. It, well, uh, so after you know a few states down the road from Lawrence, Kansas, I was in Victor, Idaho, at the Grand Teton Brewing Company, which actually began as the Otto Brothers Brewing Company, mm-hmm. just uh, just uh, east of the Idaho state line in Jackson, Wyoming. And it was so-called because Charlie and his brother Ernie Otto had started it. Unfortunately, Ernie actually just passed away at a very young age. But uh, so he had Grand, Grand Teton Brewing Company, so-called because it's in the shadow of the Teton Mountains. And his dad was out and said, you know what you need, son? You need one of those growlers. And his son Charlie said, "What? what's a growler? So he explained how back in his father's day, Kids were sent down to the tavern, to the saloon, to bring home a pail, you know, like a bucket of beer. And uh, today, you know, we would sort of laugh at that idea. You think, who would send their young kids down to the saloon to bring dad home a bucket of beer? But that's how it was done in those days. And so he, Charlie, invented, you know, you could say reinvented this package, this container that are very popular at brew pubs today, but it, he was the first person to do it. It literally is a glass, 64-ounce jug that you could seal up and put any kind of delicious beer in there you want, take it home, refill it, reuse it. And back when he did that, it, you know, it was both uh, a way to expand his business and allow beer sales to go farther than they previously had, but also a way to to conserve, you know, to protect the environment by making this container reusable rather than people tossing it or, or recycling it. Now, you also get to the Widmer Brothers in Portland, Oregon, and this is, brings in a, something that's of the moment because they got that from a family named the Ponzi's. 
Oh, yes. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, no, no relation, no relation. <laughs> to the famous Ponzi that we're hearing so much about now, no? Exactly. Uh, and in, in Oregon, you still have Ponzi vineyards. Uh, and it was a couple who had also started, you know, it's sort of a matter of dispute. But uh, for history's sake, we'll say that the Ponzi's started Oregon's first brewery, which is Bridgeport. And they really only beat Wimmer Brothers to, to market by a month or two. So it's all, you know, sort of with, you know, uh, nanoseconds here and there. But they, but Bridgeport has been sold off, and Widmer Brothers are still running their brewery today. Literally, Kurt and Rob Widmer, they were homebrewers. They thought, what if we take our passion? What if we take our, our avocation? And turn it into a vocation. And today they're doing very well for themselves. Now they make something called a wheat beer. And could you explain what a wheat beer is and why it has maybe a wider appeal than most beer? Sure. Well, you know, traditionally beer should have only four ingredients. Malted barley, hops, yeast, and water. Uh, and that is, you know, as dictated by the Reinheitsgebot, the Bavarian Beer Purity Law 1516, but uh, even then, they amended that to allow wheat, malted wheat. And one of the things that that does is it sort of gives it a, a softer flavor, uh, maybe even sweetens it up a little bit. So the Widmer Brothers weren't the first American brewery to offer a wheat beer, but they were the first to offer Hefeweizen, which really just comes from German ver words, Hefe and Weizen, meaning uh, yeast and wheat. And so it's usually an unfiltered beer. In fact, Hefeweizen is always unfiltered, and it it makes it cloudy. If you have a German style, it's going to taste a little bit more of bananas and cloves. They started a Ger an American-style Hefeweizen, which doesn't have that same fruity quality, but it's still a very delicious beer and one that some people who think they're not really big beer fans, once they taste that, they say, you know what, that does taste pretty good, and it's sort of their entree into the world of, of good and unique beers. Now, while you're traveling across the country, were you taking notes and, and writing this book kind of like a, a <laughs> journal? <laughs> uh, you know, I, I was doing all of the above, really, but uh, it's funny because when I look back at my notes, I'm, I'm sitting down with these brewery owners, and I always said to them, wherever you want to meet, if you want to meet at your house, at your office, maybe at a, a favorite bar in town, and uh, so really they... You know, everyone picked one of the above. The the interviews that, that were conducted over a few pints, and you asked about my notes, definitely started off a little clearer than they ended up by interviews end. Um, one of the most interesting to me was Electric Brewery in, in Bisbee, Arizona. And, and this Dave Harvin, this sounds like a real character. Could you talk about him? <laughs> he is. I mean, absolutely. You know, again, I wanted to find out who the different beer people are. Who are these very different people responsible for making our beer? Because unlike the beer barons, I knew that today's brewery owners didn't really fit a mold. And while that is true for everyone, it couldn't be more true than for Electric Dave who started Electric Brewing Company in Bisbee, Arizona in 1988. On the one hand, he obviously had, him, had it together enough to, to petition the state legislature to change the laws, but he is not really a role model per se. He is someone who um, really, really enjoys his product and, and a few others. Uh, 
that uh, I, I shouldn't get into too much, but let's just say where some of the other people who I met with were a little more conservative, a little more straight-laced. Some of them were even in the Marines. This guy is actually a convicted felon. and uh, But very sweet and a whole lot of fun to hang out with for a night or longer. I, I imagine you mentioned that that his probation officer is his former dealer. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's one of these border towns. You know, everywhere in the, in America, in a sense, we've it, all these different cultures have been homogenized by chains and big box stores and national television and radio programs that that will basically homogenize our culture. But uh, on the other hand. Certain parts of the country are are immune to that, are are outside of that. In Bisbee and a lot of the border towns that I've been to, really, you know, right on the U.S.-Mexican border are like that. And there is a very strong underground economy, shall we say, uh, that uh, that you couldn't do in, in your larger cities. So he is a part of that, and I, I suspect a lot of people in that town are a part of that. So... Uh, it just makes everyone in town very unique and a lot of fun. Speaking of unique, there's exactly one brewery that has survived Katrina in New Orleans. Oh, yeah. That, you know, whereas uh, Bisbee and Electric Brewing Company was certainly, for me, one of the more fun chapters to, to research, shall we say, uh, the one in New Orleans was personally a, a very sentimental one just because I love that city. I think it's a great American city, and I've enjoyed going there before Katrina, and I certainly go all the time. I've been many times since then, but it really had a devastating effect on both the city physically and the people emotionally. And so I wanted to include the Dixie Brewing Company, which is not a microbrewery. It's not a craft brewery. It's really one of those old regionals. In fact, they just celebrated their their uh, centennial anniversary. It was founded in 1907, so uh, back in 2007, it turned 100. But the current owners, uh, Joe and Kendra Bruno, they really poured their heart and soul into saving it years ago, decades ago when they bought it. And they were really gearing up for their own retirement. But after Katrina, they said, you know what? We need to bring it back to life. And unfortunately, the brewery is was first <laughs> destroyed by the floodwaters of Katrina and then immediately thereafter destroyed furthermore by looters who really had an elaborate system for taking out all the copper and other equipment there. It was just painful to stand in that place and see what had become of it. But uh, but I'm telling you, the Brunos are all heart, and they are going to see that brewery back in New Orleans. It's current. The beer is currently being contract brewed out of Wisconsin, but uh, they're great. And what I like about them is they are actually sort of training. They're preparing their granddaughter to take it over. I liked uh, finding these breweries that want to keep it in the family. So ideally, Dixie will remain in the hands of the Bruno family for a long time. And speaking of all in the family, you've got Alltex Lexington Brewery Company, which was uh, sort of <laughs> grad present. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Great. Here, here you go, son. Well, congratulations. Uh, you know, some people, some parents give their kids a car. Sometimes they give them a backpacking trip through Europe. Dr. Pierce Lines gave his son a brewery. And uh, the whole reason is when his son graduated, he said, Dad, what should I do? And his father who happened to have PhDs in malting and brewing, 
said, why don't you go into the brewing business? Like I had started out in. And the reason, the way he started out brewing is he was born in a town called Dundalk, Ireland, which is where the Harp Lager Brewery is. And he was sort of a gopher. He was a glorified gopher at the Harp Brewery. And then as he got older, he went to school and, you know, started working at the Dublin Brewery, of course, uh, at the Dublin Brewery. I mean, at, at Guinness. So he had this great foundation. And when he asked, how do I move up in the ranks? They said, no, no, you know, you don't do that. Basically, they were implying it was a boys club, a lads club. And so he set out to show them. And he that's when he got his PhDs in brewing and malting and distilling. So by the time he became sort of better trained than the people who were already making the beer at Guinness, and they said, oh, hey, come on back. He said, no, I'm going to go uh, do my own thing. And so he left Ireland, went to America, arrived in Kentucky of all places. And rather than initially trying to, to work at a brewery or start his own brewery, he had this idea to go around to distilleries and sort of be a, a troubleshooter, as it were. But because the distilling tradition in the South was already really good, there wasn't a whole lot of need for him. So anyway, so so there he is, and he's in Kentucky, and he thought, all right, I'm not going to, to make my fortune working for distilleries. And he, long story short, he devised this uh, product that was biofeed, yeast-derived food stuffs <laughs> is the best way I could put it for farm animals. You know, obviously, uh, Kentucky is thoroughbred country. So these products were are today, it's a multinational, multi-billion dollar industry called Alltech that makes food products and, and nutrients for both animals and people. And when when his son said, "What? hey, dad, hey, pop, what should I do? That's when he discovered that this little brewery in Lexington was going under. And with his considerable wealth, he, he basically bought the brewery. And uh, one of the things that I love most about this brewery is they, because they're in Lexington, which is where the Bourbon Road is, they have access to these great used bourbon barrels. By law, you could only use those oak barrels one time. So rather than these distilleries losing all that money, they then sell them to breweries like the Lexington Brewing Company, and they pour their regular ale into the they pour the ale into the barrel, and out comes this rich, amazing, delightful beer called Bourbon Barrel Beer. And it's honestly one of my favorites. But unfortunately, you could only find it in Kentucky. Oh, damn. I wanted yeah. to try something. <laughs> I really think I'll order it, some up. It's, it's, it's a pricey product, but uh, it's one of my favorite bourbon barrel-aged beers. Unfor- rather, I should say, interestingly, uh, a lot of other breweries around the country are sort of hip to this. And are finding ways to to buy bourbon, spent bourbon barrels. And you could actually find other beers like it, but none like the one that I found in Kentucky. Now, I have to ask about Dogfish Head mm-hmm. in Delaware. Um, they're run by a, an Italian family, Sam uh, Calig- Caligioni. Caligioni. Uh, and they're kind of unusual, aren't they? They are. I wanted to finish the book with the Dogfish Head Brewing Company because they are at the forefront of, of what has been dubbed the extreme beer 
movement, so to speak. <laughs> extreme beer. Extreme How could beer. it get any better than extreme beer? Yeah, it's not that you, you know, drink this beer as you're tearing it up on the slopes or mountain biking off of cliffs or anything like that. But the reason it got that term is because they are really pushing the envelope when it comes to what beer is. As I mentioned earlier, the Reinheitsgebot said beer should only be barley, hops, yeast, and water, and maybe wheat. Breweries like Dogfish Head say, you know what? Uh-uh. That, that's old school. We could do so much more. So they throw in all sorts of herbs, spices, fruits, interesting ingredients from around the world, literally. They, they source ingredients like cloudberries from the Arctic Circle or ginger from Australia. Uh, they have... Uh, a huge barrel made from a tree. I believe it's uh, well, c- certainly some South American country. Uh, and they are just doing phenomenal things. And these beers come out tasting very different from what, you know, our fathers and our grandfathers drank. Uh, so ones like Russian River here in California. Avery is a, and a good example of these breweries. Uh, they're based in Colorado. Uh, Jolly Pumpkin is one up in Michigan. There's just, there's really no end to what beer could be. And that's why I wanted to finish the book there to show not just where beer came from, but really where it's going as well. And one of the things that I liked is that uh, the Caligiones have two very young kids who, you know what, let's just see where they are in, in 20 or 30 years. And if they have any interest in turning that into yet another family owned multi-generational brewery. Now, having completed your trip, you had a, a pile of uh, beer-stained <laughs> <laughs> notes. Uh, could you oh, talk yeah. about putting the book together? Yeah, you know, it, it, it really was a long and, dare I say, arduous process. But uh, certainly when you're writing a book about beer, I never lost sight of the fact that it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun to go and travel and to meet these interesting characters and to, to work on it. So... While I did have to find a way to organize those notes, some more legible and and clear than others, uh, that's exactly what I did. And I had, of course, hours of interview on tape that I had to transcribe, and I'm not the best at that. But I just stuck with it because I, I I knew it was a lot of fun for me to work on, and I had hoped that it would be fun for other people to read once I sort of shrunk it down to 250 or so pages and uh luckily that has been the case i've been having a lot of fun you know talking to people about it and getting some really good feedback from people who are both already diehards in the beer community and some who are you know like me when i started out on this odyssey new to the table now um when you finished the book did you have an agent going into this whole trip or or did that come afterwards no i'll tell you i i almost feel guilty when i say this uh it was all very quick i had one professor at grad school who was a a big fan of of this idea of the project a big proponent and had had said you know you really need to start shopping your book you need to take that proposal that you did in class and send it out because you're going to of course get 50 rejections anyway, so why not start the process now? And I thought, all right, I'll, you know, break the ice here. And before I knew it, I, I had a, a book deal in front of me. <laughs> wow. 
I've been speaking with Brian Yeager. His new book is Red, White, and Brew, an American Beer Odyssey. Thank you for joining me, Brian. Thank you very much. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.